hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And this time we, well, part of the plan for this episode was you have now officially seen all three movies in the Halloween night Haddonfield marathon that takes place between Halloween and Halloween 2. This is a very important gap in my movie viewing to fill in, I think. This is one of those delightful little meta pop culture things <laughs> where we've seen those enough. And I've mentioned, I think in the past already on this show, that I think the first time I actually saw Night of the Living Dead were the clips in Halloween 2. But if you watch it, you see that the six hours straight of movies that Lindsay Wallace won't know what hit her are The Thing, Forbidden Planet, and and, and Halloween. And Night of the Living Dead. That would be extra meta. That would be really weird. Although Halloween <laughs> does show up in Halloween 3, so... Mm-hmm. I have go. my own theories on that one. Yeah. So we decided to to fill that gap. And, and a while back, we did our episode on many things mm-hmm. and covered that one. And of course, naturally, anybody that knows us knows we've already seen and talked about Night of the Living Dead about 4,000 times. Maybe one day we'll do that again, but no need to right now. And this time, it's Forbidden Planet. One of the great masterpieces of early science fiction film, uh, which is one of those statements that automatically feels like it it, uh, forces you out of being critical. But I'm sure you'll have a lot of things to say. There are reasons to be critical. I have some things to say. It's just that it has, you know, it looms large for a variety of, I think, still justifiable reasons. But yes, there are also things where it doesn't age at all. I mean, for me, going into it, my only concept of the movie really was that... It shows up in Halloween on the TV, and it's in the music from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's right. That's right. And uh, and you knew, and, and of course, I also did the thing that's usually helpful, which is I identified actors where, if at all possible, by their Twilight Zone appearances. This is very helpful for me, and if you, like I do, have trouble placing faces to actor names... This is a very helpful exercise uh, that I highly recommend for films of a certain era. And then before we dive into that, we usually have at least a pair. Uh, Not that it's a foregone conclusion, but it seems like a a nice dynamic we've gotten into. And we have a pair. And we were looking for a movie to pair with Forbidden Planet. And it took a little thinking. I think you eventually came up with the really, what I thought was a really brilliant idea of, okay, well, let's go from the angle of, There's the monster from the id in Forbidden Planet. What other movie can we link to that also shares the link, the angle of a monster from within someone's subconscious or acting on baser instincts and that sort of thing. And we wound up with Scanners, which weirdly enough is one of those rare horror classics, modern horror classics that neither of us have ever seen. Aside from the gif that everyone has seen. Yes. And, uh, and it's also an anniversary year for that because that was 1981. And I was really excited to see it. And I think we both, well, we'll get into it. We both had a very nice time watching it, but we'll also talk about why we don't think we'll ever feel the need to revisit it ever again. But uh, the main point is Forbidden Planet. But now, Dr. Morbius, prepare your minds for a new scale of physical scientific values, gentlemen. As with many of these things, I've talked about this in the past, it's one of the times where I start to feel the weight of like how complete can we be and we can't. So we're just going to talk about what we talk about. But I always feel like a pressure when it's one that I feel deserves a lot. Forbidden Planet is a huge um, 
early influence on science fiction pop culture in a way that that really can't be overestimated if nothing else it is one of the principal blueprints that led to star trek and so many of the choices that roddenberry made right down to the fact that the 1701 is in this the number actually is mentioned in it so a lot of that is in there there's also just gorgeous painting work going on the artwork that serves as the backdrop that creates the planet um and gives us the atmosphere the environment of altair 4 and then of course the other thing is bb and louise and lewis baron the married couple who provided the tonalities not music but the tonalities that also conveniently uh prevented them from getting nominated for an award and reaping the benefits of having created such an incredibly innovative and early technological score for a film. But it helps to create the atmosphere, and we'll talk more about that. I noticed that right in the opening credits, the idea that they would credit the electronic tonalities created by, which, I mean, I guess, in in a sense, the film was trying to put it out there that this was scientific music, even right that they were making but ultimately then what it turns out being is it allows other people to say well it's not really music it's yeah it's just tones uh, which is unfortunate because it definitely does contribute heavily to the atmosphere of the whole experience um and i will say i mean speaking to how much influence it's had watching this for the first time now it's one of those movies where I watch it and I feel like, oh, well, you know, but this has been done and that's been done. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's because I'm seeing what they drew from after seeing the things that drew from it. So I'm getting better at recognizing that while I'm watching something. I have a little trouble stepping out of it and thinking, how is this like, how is this a classic if it's really just riffing on, oh, wait, all those things that came after it, I see now. And it's hard to turn that off in your brain when, you know, you're coming to it later. It's one of the things I enjoy when we get to watch something you haven't seen. And and very often it's like, yeah, but this is something I grew up with. It really is the foundation for a lot of stuff that came later. And again, like we said earlier, and we'll get into it, there are certainly reasons why it is still very much a film of 1956 and, and suffers for that. But... I still think, unlike some movies, and we've probably talked about this quite a bit already too, unlike some things where I feel like it suffered to the point where I could no longer feel comfortable revisiting, I could still feel comfortable revisiting Forbidden Planet. There's still a lot about it that works beyond the things that are a problem. In fact, sometimes I think part of the problem is also part of the story in some respects in this film. Yeah, but also no... For me okay but but i mean it's very clear what the problems are like in the story i think it's just the issue for me is that they don't really get resolved by doing the opposite of that instead they just get resolved by doing a different version of that well let's step back and and do the brief plot for like 
the one person maybe out there who hasn't seen it. Hey, man, I had Well, yeah, that's true. And I've so, seen a lot of movies. Yeah, okay, so... I mean, I own Chupacabra versus the Alamo on disc. You did introduce me to that. We got Chupacabras all up in here! So, I mean, you can have seen, like, every possible movie out there and still not have seen Forbidden Planet. So. Really, there's nothing in Forbidden Planet that lives up to shots of Eric Estrada on a motorcycle in front of the green screen. <laughs> Or the part where the couple says, let's move over there to make out, and they move like three feet. Mm-hmm. That's... this. <laughs> well, we'll do an episode. We digress, that. but you should watch it. But anyway, uh, a lot of people point out that Forbidden Planet is an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest, and uh, this is where my English degree kind of fails a little bit, because I don't really, I've never really read through all the text of the play, and I don't know a lot about the details, but I have read a few things recently to... to clarify the fact that although people say that there are elements of forbidden planet that are clearly riffing on the tempest but it's not really as straightforward an adaptation as people seem to act i think it's a case of science fiction fandom in general loving the idea that they could claim to a literary uh you know origin for a film and that's fine there are elements of it but apparently it's not like beat for beat or anything but I mean, Shakespeare's full of tropes, too, so it's real easy to point to Shakespeare and say, aha, there's the literature it drew from, but really it's just thematic. But uh, although there are things, and, you know, we replace the island with a planet, and uh, basically what happens here is we have a United Earth ship, um, United Planets ship. Uh, Again, I mentioned Star Trek is all over this, or rather, this is all over Star Trek. Uh, United Planet ship that's already on patrol. Basically, the other one of the many things about this movie is how different it was from so many of the 50s sci-fi movies of the time. If I remember correctly, this was the first movie to actually feature uh, men from Earth on like an interstellar ship that's already like patrolling everything. Not like we're launching from Earth. We're already there. It's been for a while. This is not first spaceship to Venus. Like, it, they've already been right. there. And and then also, if I remember right, this is the first film to use a flying saucer, but it's us manipulating it, not mysterious aliens attacking Earth. We have the flying saucer. And this ship is basically the Enterprise. They're patrolling. They have places to go. They've clearly been to a lot of places already. And this crew winds up having to investigate the disappearance of an expedition to Altair 4. And they find basically two survivors, one man who was a philologist, uh, a studier of languages. Which is different from a philatelist. That's right. To be a stamp collector. If he was a stamp collector, the plot would have been very different. (laughs) Gentlemen, let me show you my upside down airplane. It's particularly interesting. So says Walter Pigeon doing his very best Walter Pigeon. He's always a very dignified actor and had that very pronounced voice. One of the things as a kid I always disliked about the movies, I always felt Walter Pigeon's performance was very stilted. As I got older, I actually started to appreciate more that maybe it wasn't a limitation. He was doing that for a reason, but he has a very, you know, he pronounces a lot, you know. And, uh, but then he also has his daughter, Anne Francis, who as... The one girl in the movie with a endless supply of miniskirts provided by Robbie the Robot, who we'll get to in a minute, has all the guys on the ship gone crazy. And, of course, they've they've been cooped up in that ship for such a long time. Which, by the way, <laughs> if we're talking about the, like, future here, and it's enough where they have 
interstellar operations that are just basically patrol ships. Yeah. You'd think they would have invented like some kind of fembot for them <laughs> for their various urges. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know, evolved past them. If, like, they've been in this spaceship for this whole time. Well, if it was truly the future, there'd be women in the crew. There'd be, like, why is it all... It's all white men on this Yeah, and if it were the future, there'd also be, statistically speaking, men who enjoy the company of other men, too. And would not need to worry about the woman on the planet, because they're just fine where they are. Right. So, this ship has to investigate that, and they have a mystery, because besides the two of them and Robbie the robot, a very advanced robot that apparently Dr. Morbius, Walter Pigeon, has created. And, you know, if there's ever a a more... uh, dramatic and ominous sounding name than morbius you know and then there's a mystery to unravel what happened to the crew of the bellerophon the ship that he was on what happened why did everybody else die why are the two of them and robbie okay and the little monkey and the other animals that she's so close to i mean also why if every other name in this is weird did they call the robot robbie robbie because he's a robot or robot depending on what 50s thing and uh, in our crew, just to complete the cast a little bit, we have John J. Adams commanding, a very solid American white name, played by Leslie Nielsen. And for anybody of a different generation coming to this movie, you just got to realize he's not funny in this. This is way before he decided he was just going to be funny. And he was awesome at being funny, but this was back when he was serious. They're taking a big chance. I know. You take a chance getting up in the morning, crossing the street, or sticking your face in a fan. He's very much the template for William Shatner's Captain Kirk in many ways. It's also worth noting that I knew this going in, and you told me Leslie Nielsen is in this, and you explained the whole, like, classically trained, dramatic Canadian stage and screen actor. And it wasn't until the end credits, and they come up, and I'm like, oh, wait. Our main character was Leslie Nielsen because <laughs> yeah. I didn't recognize him yeah. at all. Well, he also didn't have the pure white hair yet. Yes, so, yeah. that's true. But also, I mean, truly, I knew he was going to be in it. And then I instantly forgot when the movie started and when the credits rolled, I had to be like, wait, can we dial that back a minute? Because yeah. I forgot that was Leslie Nielsen. And I don't mean that in a bad way. No, I understand. It's just... He's so far removed, both in age and in tone, from what I'm familiar with, that my brain just didn't register that it was him. Well, also joining him in the crew, and again, featuring a lot of relationships and interconnections that feel very Trek-like, like all the, all the blueprint is here, is Warren Stevens' is Doc Ostra. Warren Stevens, who would later appear on Star Trek, um... By any other name i think so i mean that's kind of neat too they actually just pulled an actor and he, the relationship with him is a lot like the kirk mccoy relationship there's a warmth between the two of them and a friendship that's the core in fact some of it also feels like spock because doc also has he carries a lot of the scientific exposition side of things too so he's kind of both and then we also have as the chief engineer quinn richard anderson who anybody my age will remember best as Oscar Goldman from Six Million Dollar Man. And then also in the cast, Earl Holloman as the cook um, from, you know, Where's Everybody on Twilight Zone? Or Police Story, if you watch Police Story. And then finally is Jerry Farman, Jack Kelly. 
who's one of the like initial cast that I never knew much from other things except that I know, and I was talking to you about this recently. He was one of the other Mavericks on Maverick. He was Bart, who would change off of James Garner's Maverick. So he was like a lot of people remember him from that. And he's kind of like the uh, would-be ladies' man type who also gets in a bit of like a competition with the captain for the attentions of Alta, um, who finds all of these men fascinating as specimens of Earth manhood in a way that's very detached and scientific for her until she finds the one who's just the one. And then all of a sudden it's darling for the rest of the film. She is ultimately still just a little girl, really. That's the. It's very convenient that, you know, the first spaceship to show up your entire life shows up and just so happens to contain your perfect soulmate on Mm -hmm. it uh, and a couple of duds. But, you know, (laughs) it's going to happen. So this crew shows up and then the rest of the movie is a bit of a cat and mouse game on several levels as they're trying to find out what the secret is, why is Morbius hiding something that he's discovered on this planet, and then the mostly invisible id monster that's one of the great iconic monsters in science fiction provided partly by um, the lone skills of a Disney animator and some stunning effects work for the time. And then, of course, it leads to a pretty predictable, for our purposes today but then i guess maybe kind of interesting like psychological revelation about the nature of our baser instincts and how technology and you know humanity intertwine and basically for me also it's just one of the most amazing demonstrations of set design and art design costumes and everything as a visual piece of work it's still extraordinary and feels in some respects almost timeless there's elements of it that i could easily see still working pretty well but i think i maybe just hit right on the the bigger issue are the the sexual politics in this which suffer enormously and just can't be discarded from view yeah i mean i'm gonna agree that visually it's stunning I mean, it's stunning even for now. It's like you see movies that are made now that don't look as interesting as it looked in this film. Some of those integrations of like the the little bits of live action mixed with the matte paintings, I still say look better than a lot of CGI shots that expand live action shots. They still don't look real in the way that a model shot mixed with live action still looks physical and real. And all the Krell machine stuff in the planet. Oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah, I I, no argument from me there. It's a beautiful film. The soundscape is amazing. And when you get your first glimpse of this monster that was previously invisible, where they, they sort of managed to get it to move through an electrical field, it looks very cool. And especially for an audience in the mid 50s that had become used to science fiction as something you see as like a b movie on like a saturday night yeah i mean if you're used to seeing like a couple of paper plates on a string (laughs) getting like dangled across which you know if you didn't have the effects to work with and you just were trying to tell a story it gets the job done and you know i'm not hating on it but clearly this is a blockbuster film 
I mean, mm-hmm. this is something that was made like you're making the Ten Commandments. I mean, well, this, I mean is this is something... Well, I mean, this is an MGM movie. Yeah, it, and it's... it's... It's got money behind it in a way that science fiction at that time didn't usually. Mm-hmm. And it shows. It definitely shows. And in a good way, everybody in the film is is acting, like, extraordinarily well. I mean, it doesn't feel hokey. You know, it doesn't feel forced. There are times where they they do riff sometimes on Mystery Science Theater where they'll talk about an older sci-fi movie and how all of the names just like sound weird, like they're trying too hard to make it futury or alien. And I was joking earlier, you know, about why Robbie if everything else is weird. Uh, Joel, you're Thringmar of Linkamus 13, ruler of Blitikranka Franks and Blongmaster of Kralafrankamore. Gotcha, I'm Thingmar of Link. Right. Mm-hmm. Servo? No. Uh, you're Clayman Frank, cousin to El Rapapopakank, and you're trying to retrieve the Ten Swords of Yaron Quenkadork. Uh, yeah, whatever. Gypsy? You're Sue Anderson. But it's not that weird. It all it all sounds like it could be in-universe, that these could actually be the name of that ship, that it could be the name of that planet. It's... She also probably named him because she grew up with Robbie. And it's very clear that, like, Robbie is her best friend and has also been, like, her caretaker... And, and, you know, I never really thought about it too much. I'm sure some people have who know this movie even more than me mm. and have really, like, really delved into it. But it just occurs to me also, he's probably been more of a father to her than Morbius ever has. So, that like, when she hugs him in that one scene, I feel like she has no discomfort about hugging this big metallic thing because, to her, he's been there forever mm. and he's her best friend, but he's also been like her surrogate father in some ways, I think, too. Which, I mean, that's a lot to unpack right there, that a machine could be more paternal than her actual father. But it's true. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, you realize very quickly that everyone is weird in this situation. Yeah. And, you know, lone scientist, only surviving member of an expedition and he's just like living the high life in like a pretty nice house with a cool robot that can make you whatever you want and it's got a nice garden and a swimming pool even though the rest of the planet is just like a desert full of Mm -hmm. rocks and fear and you know she has all the woodland creatures like she's snow white just like frolicking and they're called one at a time as like a little show to visit. And it's just like nothing is that idyllic. Like you look at it and it makes you uncomfortable because you're like there's an oasis and then there's weird. Yeah. And like this is not an oasis. This is weird. Yeah. Like it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be here. And yet it is. And he's been living there and seemingly doing just fine. So the question, of course, instantly becomes how like Mm -hmm. how did that happen and ultimately the answer seems to be that from the moment they land there and he i guess i mean we should say full spoilers at this point yeah full spoilers from the moment they land there and he discovers this krell technology and sort of links himself up with the machinery 
the argument could be made that from that moment on, he is no longer himself. Like, whoever he was before that, we don't get to meet him. I've never really thought much about that either, but we don't know how much of Morbius is Krell at some point. Like, what I found interesting was you brought up a thing that I'd never... I never thought of before. I don't remember what I thought when I first saw it. I think I probably already knew the plot anyway, so it wasn't a surprise. But, like, you were theorizing at one point, like, oh, this is like the Krell are trying to find a way to come back. Like, that they were actively involved still. It's like a disembodied thing. Yeah, that they were still somehow, like, yeah. energy beings. And I was thinking, oh, that well, that part you're off one because it's not coming from them. It's coming from him. Except, now I think of it, we don't really know that. We don't know that the Krell didn't embed themselves in their machine when they became purely energy and they became this malevolent form of all their baser their id why do we assume they were completely eradicated why do we not think well maybe there are vestiges of that and maybe morbius is part or all like a krell version of morbius that's... I mean, it's like over time and him getting more comfortable with the equipment and he's sort of talking about how when you link up with the machine. It's a pretty cool idea. If you can't take it, if you're not in his sort of mind, not worthy of it, but mm-hmm. really it's just not capable of, of handling the electrical inputs of it, that it will destroy you. And for him, it didn't destroy him, but it definitely like changed him we also talked about how his relationship with it is very like an addiction metaphor very much you could definitely see it as like a drug addiction but it's sort of like every time he uses it is he becoming like slowly more and more krell like are they trying to use him as this vessel sort of being john malkovich style where they're all gonna like climb inside because that's their only escape hatch for this. I talked to you also at one point about how for a while there, back when I was, we were pitching Star Trek, that a couple of us in that little writer group, we had tried to get them interested in a Forbidden Planet comic, which didn't go all the way, but went like a few steps. And But that was an idea we'd never come up with that would have been a fun thing to build out. Like, you know, the idea I'd had was, what if you found that there were other planets with other Krell machines? Like, why do we assume they didn't colonize other worlds if they were that advanced? But um, but that's a very interesting idea. And the thing is, though, by suggesting that, you're kind of suggesting, like, not to let them off the hook, but Morbius as the human can't be held necessarily entirely responsible if he's partly been transformed. Mm, no, or... I can hold him responsible. Okay. All right. Because well, here's then. the thing. Never mind. You don't have to hook your face up to the alien <laughs> machine that you find in a sub-basement on an otherwise abandoned desert planet. Well, sure. If you're just going to pass that up, then fine. It's like always that situation in <laughs> movies where you have a man who thinks he knows better than anyone else. And he's just going to like touch the thing, open the thing, drink the thing, whatever it is. <laughs> That he really should not be doing, but he thinks, you know what? I'm fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. And it's such an archetype and it drives me bananas. And you and I have talked about this even like up until like modern times when you talk about um, Iron Man in particular in like Marvel movies and sort of that feeling of he's going to be the one to like put the glove on and like bring everything back. But 
we both agreed that in his mind, he probably thought ultimately nothing would happen to him because he's Tony Stark. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is the same type of character. Well, wouldn't you say this movie is also like, it's just nothing but different permutations of toxic masculinity. It's a catalog of it. This movie is toxic masculinity beautifully presented (laughs) that ultimately learns nothing and i mean we actually have the moment i would certainly say in like the the common like uh geek or fan parlance the most cringeworthy moment is the part where uh like jerry is like pushing himself on alta she seems to handle herself fine but you keep helping me after all you're not robbie (laughs) i wouldn't mind being robbie in certain ways Uh, that's only in certain ways of course See, that was probably very clever, but I don't seem to understand it. Well, there's, uh, there's no rush. Like, there's a mix of naivete, but also a clear understanding. Like, there's the part where she talks to Adams and says, you know, she's studied things like biology. Like, she knows the basics of the reality of it, but she's never actually experienced it. And you get this weird dichotomy where she seems like a kid, but she also seems like she's smart. Which maybe you'll say in a second, maybe you'll say is also part of like how it's problematic in presenting her. But like there's that moment where Adams just flat out tells her it would have served you right if, you know, and it's just the most uncomfortable thing. For, and he's our hero and saying, you know, it'd be fine if they attacked you because you, you led them on. Yeah, he's saying basically you, woman whose planet we landed on, walking around her own home in clothing that she herself has worn every single day of her life should know better than to do that around men because how could they help themselves when there's so much leg on display? And it's like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Like, you're supposed to be our hero. And ultimately, he's the person that she decides is the one that she's going to get with. And I would argue that perhaps an even more cringeworthy note is the fact that the moment she kisses him, it's like a little switch gets flipped and she immediately loses her innocence and can no longer commune with the animals. And her very best tiger friend is going to maul her face off until he has to shoot it. And I showed you the, it's one of the rare occasions where you see from like a film of this era, you see some deleted scenes. The DVD and Blu-rays have always had this little suite of stuff that they cut, including a couple bits with the doctor where... He explains to the commander the the myth of the unicorn. And basically they talk a little bit about how she gave up her purity. And therefore, you know, it, she's lost her aura. You can't see my face, but you can imagine my face yeah, right I, now. I can see her face. <laughs> I'm seeing it for all of you right now. It's, I mean, uh, yeah. it's yeah. real gross. It is real gross. And it's something that was not invented by this movie. No, of course and not. And it's been used over and over again. For example, if you've seen uh, Live and Let Die, James Bond movie. Yeah, that's right. You have Jane Seymour as a fortune teller who has to remain virginal or else she can't actually tell fortunes. And of course, James Bond has to conquest the heck out of like any lady part he sees. He just like knocks the uh, like psychic stuff right out of her apparently. One night with James Bond, and she's just a completely useless regular woman shell. Doesn't Yafet Koto's character also have a moment where he says something like he he wants he it's his right to take it from her when he decides 
Yeah. Like he's waiting for a day when he's just going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I used to like Live and Let Die. I mean, I still like Live and Let Die, but he it He jumps has, across alligators. It has fire. problems. It does. Yeah. It's certainly not unique to this film no. to have a character like that. But it's also, like, it's it's difficult to root for basically anyone in this movie except Alta or the robot. Yeah. Like, they're the only two characters where you're like, I care what happens to them because they have no agency in this. And therefore, what happens to them matters to me. But everyone else, hmm, I could take it or leave it. I mean, ultimately, it's a battle of two men, Morbius and Adams, of who gets control of everything. Mm-hmm. It's a battle of control through the whole thing. Control of the Krill, control of the knowledge, control of Alta everything even really control of the robot yeah which which adams gets too i mean (laughs) he takes the robot yeah it's why i say it's like they learn nothing by the end of it because he gets the girl and the robot on the ship and you know the planet gets destroyed so he won't have to deal with her father anymore so that's handy he can have the girl without you know the father-in-law I guess I I don't know man it's it's hard to care about the characters but the story is interesting it's like the actual idea of here's a planet where an absolutely like unbelievably advanced race of beings lived and developed all this technology and I mean, they they developed some cool stuff, it sounds like. You might be hearing me typing, but that's because I'm typing. <laughs> I was just looking up because it occurs to me, one of the things I always... I mean, once we get going, once once Morbius gets to the part where it's like, fine, I'll tell you everything, mm. and takes us on the tour of Krell technology, one of the first things he shows us is a little device on his desk that plays Krell music. First of all, one of the things about that that I love is that the Krell music sounds like the tonalities that play throughout the movie. So what I love about the potentially meta concept of the musical score of this film is that without knowing it from the beginning of the movie, it's like we've been hearing Krell music from the beginning, Mm. but we didn't know that until we get to that. And then suddenly we think, oh my God, the tones we've been hearing all this time are Krell, which I love. But the other thing that occurs to me, and the timing works out, is that the concept of finding an incredibly advanced, beautiful race with incredible technology that apparently fell apart and died and left behind things like artifacts that play their incredibly weird music is in Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And that actually predates this by six years. So it was first published in 1950. I have a hard time not believing that some elements of this were things that might have influenced them If nothing else, certainly that moment of the idea of you can hear the music of an ancient race being played, which I always thought was one of those beautiful ideas. So that's the Martian Chronicles. But I think well, also the idea of of a community and a civilization that's automated Mm. to the point that it it keeps going. Um, That was always the the real like knife twist in the gut for me reading the Martian Chronicles is you've got. The automated houses that are just waking up in the morning and turning on the lights and making the toast and no one eats the toast. I'll throw the toast away and watering the lawn. It's like 
the houses don't know there's no people left. That was the haunting um, short story. That's, I mean, it's one of the chapters in that. That was There Will Come Soft Rains, mm-hmm. which is like one of, I think, one of the greatest and most chilling, like, anti-nuclear stories ever done. And as a kid, I had a record album that I now found on iTunes or somewhere put in iTunes. And um, Leonard Nimoy reads... Uh, there will come soft rains, and then on the other side, he reads the Usher 2 chapter with the guy who builds the House of Usher to trap all the censors mm-hmm. in there. And and that, if I remember right, a teacher actually in grade school played us There Will Come Soft Rains in class. Smoke and silence. A great quantity of smoke. Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said over and over, again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heaped rubble and steam, Today is August 5th, 2026. 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 It's a horrible story. It is to creepy. Hear. It's so creepy. But it but it always stuck with me. So I I love that part. Yeah. There's a bit of that feeling too. Yeah. Because clearly yeah. the house where he's living He, he made that. It's like yeah. it it's it's situated above all of this technology yeah. and all of these automated sort of uh, energy systems that power everything and mm-hmm. he's very proud of them i mean talking about how amazing it is and self-sustaining and see you can see it kicking on etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's a cool idea but i can't for the life of me figure out why and this is not the only science fiction story that does it but why in science fiction they seem to think pretty often that once a society evolves to a certain point of like overall like comfort and wellness and sort of stimulation and there's artistry because clearly there's music. So it's yeah. not like the arts were abandoned and everyone's comfortable and happy. And so then their next thought is, but what if we didn't even need bodies? <laughs> And Star Trek is replete with like energy beings and and uh, two thousand one. There's also yeah, and there's also like uh, everything from the Organians in Star Trek. Lots of others who are like we were once as you were, and then we ascended into. It's like yeah, why? What? Why? Why? I don't know. I guess it's. The, I mean, having not really delved into that specifically all that much, all I can say is just a generalized idea. As I figure, it's just. I guess it's just like a basic rumination on the idea of the finest example of like a, a an intellectual achievement would be, could you be pure mind? Which I guess is like the science fiction version of the spirit. Like if you're not going to be religious or think in terms of God, mm. what is God? But then the ultimate expression of the human mind and you let everything else go. Yeah, and I guess there's, like, immortality built into that, too, that if you're just this, like, energy being, you're you no live lo- forever. You're no longer held down by the body and everything that that represents, which can be, which is limiting. Yeah, but to me, I guess maybe 
the more understandable or realistic leap in that sense is androids. Yeah. As opposed to just... Well, there's plenty of that, what, too. What do we need bodies for? Let's just be energy. And it's like, well... And then to sort of explain it all by saying they forgot that deep inside themselves they could never get rid of, like, this id that made them want to, like, murder and maim and rape and pillage and all of this stuff. And it's like, well, but if they were so evolved that they had none of that in their society, why do you think there's still going to be a kernel of that inside their minds? Yeah, it's like the idea that, well, surely that's all still buried in there which i think says more about the people telling the story than it does about the krell or any of your subject matter then at that point right yeah, yeah. i mean basically it's just boys will be boys the movie but like you the krell forgot one deadly danger their own subconscious hate and lust for destruction the beast the mindless primitive well and the thing is if you look at it that way there's your you got multiple layers of that because you see it in practice with the crew of the ship and how they behave with Alta, which we, let's say we as 1956 viewers or moviegoers, were just meant to say, yeah, that's the way that works. That's what a guy is going to be. So you can't change that. So hey, the sailors have come into port. Yeah, she's got to put pants on. You know, that's that's. And the thing is, in a way, it's almost like the movie's aware of that because there are the multiple layers. Because while that's happening, we also then get this thing. But then see, that's what happens is that that eventually transforms into this giant monster. Yeah, and he, like, yells at her, so she goes to the robot and is like, I better give him what he wants, and, like, can you make me a full-body draped outfit that doesn't show any skin? And then she's like, huh? Hey, sailor, do you like this one? And he does, actually, but then he gets mad, but he still wants her, and then he's mad again. And then, like, five seconds later, she's like, I'm going to go with you, darling. And it's like, how did we get to that? How did that happen? But then that's the other thing, too, that we've often talked about. And it's not just 50s movies. It lasts for quite a while. But there's this weird time where it seems like in movies, you can just have two people meet. And literally five minutes later, they're calling them each other darling and decided they're going to be married. And it's like, why did movie why did audiences ever think that made sense? Like, how does that make sense? They don't know each other. The and, only movie that I've seen from that era where it actually makes sense, and we talked about it a bit on a previous episode, is the thing from Another World, where it's clear that our sort of love interest couple has already fooled around a little bit. Yeah, they had a history. Like, they're they very, know each other, they've yeah. met before. I didn't know you had such a nasty temper. Now, Pat, just be careful. Now, take it easy. Now, wait a minute. We had a lot of fun when you were up here. And then when you asked me down to Anchorage, you deliberately fed me a lot Tell of... Tell me something. Did you really drink all those drinks? Mm-hmm. You didn't throw any away or uh-huh. anything? Not a one? No. Holy cat. <laughs> I thought I was good. And another thing. Why did you leave? When I woke up in the morning, you were gone. Well, I told you I had to take that cargo plane back here. You told me? Don't you remember? No. <laughs> right after dinner. You were telling me all about uh, about a night in San Francisco when that? you uh, mm-hmm. oh. you know they're both very fiercely independent and okay with that in they each have other. A, they have a sense of humor with each other about it all. Like it's very natural, and it's not the first time they met, but it's the first time 
they've been inside a pressure cooker together. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, basically, their decision is we really should spend more time together. And like, that's nice. Yeah. This basically is like he's chosen himself a child bride and it's just very uncomfortable because never mind the fact that she's supposed to be what like 19 19 you know it's like she's not 19 psychologically though in no way is she 19 psychologically and also you know societally speaking somehow we've decided that because legally you become an adult at 18 that somehow that also means that like psychologically and emotionally you instantly become an adult who can make adult decisions at 18 and anyone who has ever been 18 can tell you that is not true i was not making adult decisions at 18 and you know there were still systems in place to like Make sure I didn't do anything crazy. And she's been isolated on that planet her entire life. So she's had no socialization. Her only social companion is a robot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is not someone who is capable of making that kind of decision for herself. And if you're really supposed to be the hero, you should help essentially liberate her from a dangerous situation without taking advantage of her there should be a way to do both Mm -hmm. Um, because clearly she is in a dangerous situation it's not she can't live the rest of her life there even morbius says though where he says that like he'll probably have to go to earth eventually for her Mm -hmm. but he clearly wasn't in any rush which also in a sense is i think another aspect of that addiction sort of metaphor and he knows that he needs to make a choice that's right for his child but he can't because he can't leave behind all this technology that he is addicted to and it's impacting his ability to actually make choices for his family Mm -hmm. um and it's also very 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 murky as to what exactly happened to his wife. I always assumed he killed her. Yeah, I mean, that's my assumption too. It's clear that he killed everyone else. Like, when it's they... clear that his id killed the rest of the settlers when they decided they were going to leave because he didn't want to. I think, isn't it the only reference we get about her is where he says she died of natural causes shortly after, which is crap. There's no yeah. way. And I feel I like... I mean, I think they're trying to imply maybe she died, died in childbirth because yeah, he was just there because by himself. Because they were there, but I don't believe that with the Krell machinery. And yeah, you can argue, well, maybe you didn't know how to use it then. I'm sorry. I think, it to me, there's no other explanation, but she probably wanted... Maybe, you know, when she was pregnant, she wanted to go back or they wanted to find a way back or we can't be here on this planet with a kid and all that. And... Whatever vibes he was picking up from her, it was clear to him at a certain point that she would not be happy staying there with his plan to just immerse himself in this forever. Mm-hmm. So I think he killed her. I mean, it just makes a hell of a lot more sense that he's the one. Mm-hmm. Why is there one random death and it's the one closest to him that is totally natural? That doesn't make sense. It it had to have been him. Yeah. I like also the implication that Robbie knows all along to a certain extent 
and maybe it's been protecting Alta because I think it's Adams who says, Leslie Nielsen says toward the end, when Morbius orders Robbie to attack and Robbie can't, and Adams says, because we see the Asimovian kind of like three laws kind of thing he demonstrates earlier where he shows how Robbie can't hurt people, you know, mm -hmm. and Adam says he knows it's you. So he can't attack the id monster because he recognizes it as Morbius, so he can't do anything about it. So it's like, well, if that's the case, he's probably always known, but his job is to be her protector and her guardian and, and caretaker and presumably take care of the house. But it seems like it's mainly focused on her. So, you know, I who mean, knows? I guess... Maybe Morbius even built Robbie to, like, protect her against him. In that sense, then, really what we're talking about here is Robbie as a mother figure, even as opposed to a father figure. Okay. Because Robbie is also sort of the replacement housewife. It's Robbie who's yeah. making the food and serving the coffee. Makes the dresses. Robbie makes the dresses. Robbie incinerates the trash. Very cliched, done. like gender roles, maybe. Mm -hmm. So we're saying he's the mother. I can see that. Okay. Yeah. That makes I sense. I mean, I can also get the vibe of that sort of, an origin point down the line for other types of like robot housekeeper sure type roles like the Jetsons and you talk about oh, yeah, um yeah. is it Rosie? Yeah. It even Rosie. sounds like Robbie. I mean it's Rosie, yeah. not Robbie. Yeah. Who's sort of their their robot housekeeper. We should mention by the way, Robbie is like an icon in his own right. This is Robbie's debut, but the Robbie the robot suit um, which is an extraordinary piece of work for 1956 with lots of moving parts and like functioning gears and pieces and lights and everything would appear countless times well into the 1970s, early 80s. And of course, there have been like uh, uh, like uh, people who've repaired the suit and people have owned the original suit and there have been fabricated um, duplicates, but of course, Robbie himself, the original one for all intents and purposes, has appeared. It was modified a few times. People who know a lot more about Robbie than I do can identify even parts of him when like, they change the head and some things. Mm -hmm. and, but Robbie appears very soon after Forbidden Planet, uh, I think a couple times, in Lost in Space. And one of my favorite early Lost in Space where he turns up as the villain, who's like an alien robot that's come to challenge the robot and lost in space and then he turns up in even a columbo episode later in the 70s where he's like in a scientist's lab so robbie's and probably one of the most merchandised robots in sci-fi history i'm sure i have a robbie around here somewhere or one or two of them so i mean that that image is uh an incredible piece of work and it helps that you got marvin miller doing the voice and it just a uh, uh, great robot but like you said a template for so many other robot characters would come after him mm -hmm. and i think the housekeeper thing makes a lot of sense like a mother figure makes a lot of sense and was he's kind of he's he's also like round and comforting looking too he's not he's he, huggable he doesn't have sharp edges there's yeah, no corners yeah there's something to that isn't there mm -hmm. he's not an off-putting looking character he's a warm looking character in some respects so yeah and probably also her teacher yeah i figured that sort yeah. of like tutor kind of situation yeah um and realistically if if morbius was spending as much time as he we think he was in that lab trying to like learn everything the krell knew 
he probably didn't spend all that much time no. with his daughter while she was growing up. Now I want to do a golden book style, uh, like little prequel book that's like a kid's book of little Alta and Robbie while he teaches her things. And it's like, that's the framework for a series of little books about science and stuff. But it's Alta and Robbie. I think I just gave away an idea. So there you go. Somebody pitch MGM or whoever owns the rights right now to that. It's Alta and Robbie's Adventures in Science. And they, they go off and explore things together. You heard it here first. Yeah. We accept all forms of payment. Yes. Yes, I can see it now. Uh, before we completely leave Forbidden Planet, I wanted to cover one other aspect of this that may only be interesting to me. But I thought, I thought it was interesting because I was looking it up and it was fascinating to me how what a shift this was in the production of science fiction like we were talking about earlier that there were so many movies that sci-fi was the purview of like b-movie black and white saturday matinee suddenly mgm full color lots of money almost everything you see in forbidden planet eventually wound up on twilight zone and, and a few other places the costumes the sets the flying saucer prop all these things and um and then it occurred to me on this show we have inadvertently covered a lot of the history of MGM's relationship with science fiction and how every once in a while they would return to set a bar again or be part of a step forward in science fiction storytelling and film. And so, for instance, I quickly looked up the timeline of what science fiction movies were done by MGM and when they happened. And it's fascinating how often we've already crossed with that timeline. So, only a few years after Forbidden Planet, it was MGM that produced the 1960 Time Machine, which is fantastic, Rod Taylor and Time Machine. But of course, MGM in 1968 does 2001. And we haven't talked about that one, but uh, obviously that is a watershed moment. And then in 1973, there's a double hit, including one I think we've talked about at least, did we talk about in the show? It was Soylent Green. Yes, we did. And Westworld both 1973, both MGM. And then in 1976, MGM decides to invest seven to eight million dollars in Logan's run, which of course we devoted an episode to. And their only mistake was they were a year before Star Wars shows up, but they were there at that moment. In fact, I even found there were some elements of Logan's run that made me think like Box's appearance in Logan's run is like a Robbie that's evil. He's also doing a lot of the same things, but there's also metaphors of addiction in both movies. Uh, Logan's Run starts with a musical score that is tonalities mm -hmm. until we get outside and then the music goes orchestral. But it was like there's some interesting connections. as 20 years apart, Forbidden Planet to Logan's Run. I thought it was kind of interesting. The travel car is like the car they take in the Krell machine, all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um and then going forward, MGM did Clash of the Titans, Ray Harryhausen's last movie in 81. And then their last big contribution, it seems, to science fiction was uh, they produced Stargate. And then that wound up becoming its own huge franchise of multiple shows. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. And the fact that we just can't seem to get away from MGM because MGM also did Hackers and it also did War Games. So we did a whole episode that was MGM computer stuff. And uh, I yeah. think we've done almost everything that you mentioned. I think we may have talked about Westworld on Doctor of the Dead. Doctor of the Dead yeah, might have. In the previous podcast. Because um, I, I remember coming up with an alternate ending that just oh, like, blew yeah. your flipping mind. That's right. 
You do that a lot. You come up with better endings for things. Uh, I must remind you that the uh, scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. We're going to go and move on to uh, our next film, which I thought was just an incredible concept for how to pair something where it's rather than something of a similar story or similar actor or the way we often do things you were instead let's look at the theme of like uh like finding the buried baser instincts in a human mind and what what other movies have dealt with that yeah i mean we were both kind of trying to look for something else that was sci-fi or you know something with exploration something with robots and then it occurred to me if we start thinking about like telepathy and telepathic communication and ultimately telepathic attack is like that sort of our connective tissue here and as we watched it we discovered as we often do mainly it's just because the way our minds work a lot of other connectivity including the fact that both movies shared an experimental musical score but we wound up with scanners from 1981 which is one of the like linchpins of modern gross out science fiction or at least so I thought, only to find out that really the things that, not that they aren't amazing special effects work, but basically this movie only has two scenes in the entire movie that really go all out with the kind of stuff people, I think, tend to think of when they think of that word. Mm-hmm. But really, Scanners, for the most part, is like a, a like a techno-corporate thriller where the, the, the whole you know head-busting thing is only a couple things. And it's amazing work, but it's only a couple things. But... We did it, and I also just wanted to mention that uh, one of the little side things I like keeping track of for the show is I've been hoping we'll cover more as we move forward, is that I've been keeping track of when we cover a video nasty, one of the classic original 72 movies that were listed. However, there's a longer list than the list of 72 video nasties because there was a whole third section that they eventually put together of movies that were neither prosecuted nor really... Uh, pursued but that were eventually listed as video nasties and we've covered a few of those already including prom night and the thing but they're not generally considered video nasties because they were in section three they're sort of like a wish list of we'd prosecute them if we could yeah it was like an extended part of the list so they're not really part of the 72 and scanners is one of those but it doesn't really matter as far as video nasty is concerned but it it's intense but anyway so scanners David Cronenberg, early in his career, uh, it's a very Canadian film. It's a very Canadian film. It's sort of a sci-fi Jason Bourne situation. Yeah, and we find out, and it's got some nice world building, too. I'm basically, like I said at the beginning of the episode, neither of us had seen it. It it has a, a significant place in the history of modern horror. Um, it went on to have quite a few sequels, none of which are particularly relevant to the original film in any significant way. So one of the, like a couple of them, it's like the son of, uh, or the child of a couple of the characters, but then they went into this weird side thing of Scanner Cop and did some other stuff. But the, I think the goal for those movies was just, they liked the idea of blowing up a head in every film. So let's keep doing that. <laughs> but in this one, it was this idea that there is a subset of people out there that have these telepathic and like uh, mental abilities in their scanners. And there's like a corporation trying to cultivate their power for obvious reasons. And then there's an evil side. 
And uh, it stars only two notable people that I could really recognize. Everybody, there's a lot of Canadian casting here. But in the role of the elder scientist is the prisoner himself, Patrick McGowan, uh, doing his usual performance. Pretty good. And uh, as our main villain in the, in the movie that kind of established him and started his career is Michael Ironside. And I remember him best as Ham Tyler from V, and some of you might know him from uh, Total Recall or Starship Troopers or a lot of other things he's done. But in this, he's the guy on the poster. The poster, which, by the way, shows you the last scene in the movie. So, well done, poster. Add this to a long list yeah. of those. But uh, our lead guy, the, the guy we follow as our hero, Cameron Vale, is an absolutely empty, like, steely-eyed vacant poor guy who should not be carrying a film Stephen lack and he's okay but really he's he shouldn't he shouldn't be carrying this movie but yeah he's like a blank slate this guy. yeah i mean in a sense the character is also kind of a blank slate it kind of feels like it works in a weird way yeah. like he's somebody who just his whole life basically was miserable and i mean i guess metaphorically speaking this is a very like long drawn out metaphor for like schizophrenia or like you know hearing voices is what he talks about like he could hear other people's thoughts around him and you know kind of trying to paint it as though this isn't a failing he just doesn't know how to manage it um, which ultimately is not the worst message to send but it also gets real weird real quick where it turns out it's also it's not just that he can hear other people but that he can influence them and that he above all others it's like it's the hero's journey mm-hmm. but like weird but it's also another variation on there's a master race and and he's the an chosen almost, one in an almost x-men kind of style is there a war between the regular people and you know the people that are better um it's also interesting by the way that lack didn't continue as an actor there's that sequence in the movie that's all like one of the scanners is an artist and he actually became a, a neo-expressionist uh, sculptor and painter. That's where he spent most of his career. Uh, very successfully, it looks like. So he found his place for, you know, where he should be. I mean, the one thing I'll say right off the bat going into it is I think we were both very surprised at how early in the movie the gif we all know happens Yes, I mean, the scene everybody most remembers is the scene where Michael Ironside's character pops a guy's head, and it's uh, still one of the great like moments of horror, makeup, and special effects ever. And uh, as most people famously know, it was like, you know, a head stuffed with all kind of stuff, and there's a special effects guy on the floor behind it with a shotgun, and that's how they accomplish the shot. And it's it's amazing looking. And as long as you don't pause it, the head looks really like the guy. I mean, like, you know, it's it, it looks goofy if you hold it in still shot. But yeah, well. it's incredible looking. But it happens real soon. And then there's nothing like that in the rest of the film until the very end and the final showdown between Michael Ironside's character. Was it Revok or Revok? I can't remember. And Cameron. Yeah, 
but even that doesn't go to that extent. Instead, we get like the the then relatively new technology of the bladder effect stuff where they're like popping out their veins on their face as they're fighting and Ironside's eyes go white. And like I said, literally, it's it, the poster is the showdown scene at the end. Um, and it's a little... It gets to the body horror stuff that starts to be a little uncomfortable because like pieces of the face are falling off. And I have to say, this is, by the way, a ex- reason why I have never been a fan of Cronenberg stuff. And in general, it very much dislike all of Cronenberg's work. I don't say, I don't mean that as a, a, a judgment of quality. I know that a lot of people love his work and that he's very important to the history of horror. And I don't discount that. All I'm saying is, Body horror and stuff that like affects the body in those kind of ways or like a machine body to get that kind of stuff. That's one of my areas where I feel so uncomfortable and it makes me so disgusted to look at that I can't enjoy it. So I can't. And since that's what Cronenberg loves to do, I can't really enjoy almost anything he's ever done. I saw The Fly, his version of The Fly, when I was much younger. And thought it was amazing. So apparently I've gotten like less able to handle it as I've gotten older. I mean, I'm basically in the same boat here. I mean, we both have sort of a similar sensibility. I think I can handle it a little more and a little better than you can. But I think we both have a line after which we're just too uncomfortable to enjoy what we're watching. Um And I agree, it's not like saying that it's in any way bad or like shouldn't be. It's just not for us. Not for us. Um, But that being said, I I do think that sort of the bladder work they're doing here is extraordinary. I mean, it's very cool. And if, if there were just like... I mean, I'd say if there were just a little less of it, but there really isn't that much of it. There's it's not as just, much as you'd think. He no. saves it all up, and then you're like, you want to see body horror? Let me just give you an extended sequence of it. Yeah. And that's where, after a certain point, you know, and obviously that's his intention, and that's fine. You know, you do you, guy. But after a certain point, it gets so uncomfortable that you're like, all right, like, where are we going with this? Right, let's wrap this up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will mention also another, like, parallel that we didn't really expect with Forbidden Planet is this also deals with elements of addiction because this also has, uh, as one of its threads, the fact that there is a drug they're creating that allows them to sort of control the scanners but also provide them with relief from like the crushing feeling of everyone's thoughts around them all the time. And that drug is being created by this company. And part of that is also how um, he and the person he winds up uh, teaming up with Jennifer O'Neill's Kim, they wind up sorting out um, the conspiracy at the heart of all this. And the fact that Michael Ironside's character is actually at the core of it. And of course, one of the things that also comes up again, full spoilers, full spoilers, is that it turns out our hero and Michael Ironside are actually brothers. This is dropped on you in like the last five minutes. Like, you, by the way, that scientist you were working with before, yeah. he's our father and we're brothers and our mother's no longer in the picture, but also did I mention we're brothers and we're more powerful than everyone else because we're brothers and he was the experimenter and we had it first because he gave it to our mom. We're brothers. Mm-hmm. And it's like at that point, it's like, really? This is where we're going with this? And yet, I, oh, and the the very experimental music score, which I think you were really keen into in a lot of it. I liked it a lot. Was Howard Shore. 
who started off on Saturday Night Live, wound up becoming Cronenberg's like primary musical composer, and then of course, as many know, wound up being the composer for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and uh, has has done some amazing work, and and really contributes quite a bizarre, at times unsettling, and at times very interesting. Uh, musical atmosphere to this movie. I think one of the things, like I said at the beginning, is we really enjoyed it. I never felt like it got slow, even though like a lot of it, it, it threw us because it really just winds up being, for the most part, sort of like not quite a road trip, but a bit of that like like a corporate thriller of them trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, it is a little slow in that all the exposition happens in like the last fifteen minutes of this movie yeah it all the one thing i'll say is it almost feels when you get to that part like the story feels a bit lopsided like did they just think of this on the day because it would be nice to have more of a build-up to that and you just get the info dump at the end but it's interesting i mean the movie holds your interest through the whole thing it's also kind of believable in that ultimately we find out that these telepathic abilities were like an accidental side effect of a drug that was being given to pregnant women um, to help, I guess, control, you know, their symptoms of discomfort during pregnancy, um, which in and of itself is essentially a statement on things like thalidomide, Mm -hmm. you know, which would have sort of coming, well, I guess thalidomide's a little little early for that but still people then would have been aware of what had happened with it um and in realizing this they discontinued it but then continued experimenting with it to see this accidental side effect can we use it to our advantage in order to actually develop these telepathic abilities in people which is a very classic theme in science fiction and the idea of like you know chemical companies and drug companies working with like potentially authoritarian regimes to try to create super soldiers exactly there's um, the nazi kind of yeah it's it, yeah. very much so right down to the end where you find out essentially they're giving this drug to pregnant women without telling them what's going to happen and basically developing super scanners because one of the scanners gets scanned by a fetus sitting in a doctor's waiting room yeah that was a cool uh, little twist to that it's a very interesting touch and something that doesn't get resolved at all at the end of it which i guess is what's supposed to set it up potentially for a sequel or leave it open-ended i don't know well i mean like i have no interest in seeing any of the sequels and it doesn't sound from what i've read like any of them really live up to the like promise of what you could do with this idea although again it's not that unique an idea the idea of like a secret like subgroup of telepathic people out there in the culture that's been done in a lot of other different ways and i mean not that this is any less for it like i've said multiple times now we really enjoyed the experience of it i'm i'm very glad to have filled in this gap especially for me like sometimes i feel there's this weird thing where i can't believe there are certain things i missed at a time where I would normally have expected I would have seen scanners then mm. with all the other things I know from 1981, but I didn't. 
And unlike some things where I feel like, well, you can't go back, I thought this like lived up in part to what I expected, but also provided an entertaining experience. But also, I feel like I, I have no desire to ever see it again. It was a one and done kind of thing. Um, but it was an interesting experience to see it. And a nice and bizarre kind of pairing for Forbidden Planet to check out another movie that explored another aspect of what happens when you awaken sort of the monster from the id. We've won. We've won. I wanted to mention something about, um, you know, in the past, one of the early things we had on the show was the uh, tragedy of the week with the different people. Well, I mean, we didn't do it on purpose. It just turns out there are tragedies. Yeah. Jennifer O'Neill is interesting. She was a model and uh, I mean, she's uh, she's 73 now. The model and an actress. She's been married nine times to eight men. Um, and it seems like tragedy has followed her her whole life. And she's reacted to it in uh, somewhat odd and unfortunate ways. She had an ex-husband who was murdered by a former associate. Uh, she suffered a gunshot wound in her home, uh, which supposedly was her shooting herself in the stomach to determine if the weapon was loaded. Her That's a weird way to determine if the <laughs> weapon is loaded. Her husband at the time was not in the house, it says, when the gun was discharged, but two other people were in the house. Um and then she was present on set on the television series cover-up when John Eric Hexum uh, killed himself by shooting himself with a gun that had blanks in it because blanks could still kill you when you hold them next to your head and he died and there was a very infamous incident at the time. Um, and uh, then she moved to Tennessee in a farm in the 90s and then in the 2000s wrote a book called From Fallen to Forgiven where she talked about how she had basically been like convinced by Satan to have an abortion and has now become a pro-life activist and born-again Christian and um, and uh, deeply, deeply regrets that, that she did that. It sounds like she's trying to shake the storm cloud, but I don't really think that's going to work. Yeah, so she's quite a, quite a cloud of tragedy from Scanners. And like I said, Cameron, our lead guy, Black, he went on to be a very successful artist, so he's okay. Michael Ironside, most people who know Michael Ironside know where he wound up, and Patrick McGowan, of course, I mentioned The Prisoner, and you just were recently seeing some of your first Columbo ever, uh, which we really should watch some more of, but uh, one you haven't seen yet was any of the ones with Patrick McGowan. McGowan wound up becoming one of Peter Falk's best friends and collaborators on the show. He appeared four times, I think. As a killer. I've watched enough to be excited at the idea that Columbo has a friend that's not a dog. Oh, well, I mean, uh, I mean, in real life. Oh, is he like a Moriarty in the show? Oh, no, no. There's never a Moriarty in the show. I'm sorry. No. I mean, there, there are multiple actors who came back multiple times, but they always played different characters. So it's a weird aspect of it. So, like, so Patrick McGowan is on the show four times. Each time, he's a completely different person, but he's always the killer, and he's playing a different kind of killer. Robert Culp did it. I that think, is three very times. weird and unsettling for me. Yeah, and Jack Cassidy, who died relatively young, is one of the most famous Columbo killers of all time. I think he's on three times, and again, always a different character. How does the audience like? How is that explained to the audience? It isn't. It just is. Yeah. 
<laughs> you still can't see the face I'm making. Those of you that know Columbo know what I'm talking about, right? And yet we never question this, but... I'm questioning she's it. She's having trouble. Yeah, I, I know, but that's the way. And also, since McGowan's also a very um, talented and innovative director, he also directed episodes he wasn't even in, because the two of them... Basically, the two of them had a real meeting of minds. Well, that makes sense to me. That's yeah. fine. Come on back, direct an episode. But I don't understand how you play another character. Yeah. And it's someone Shatner was on different. twice, once in the 70s and once in the 90s. And he was different people on it. But he was a killer in both of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's just the way it worked. It's like it was an anthology kind of series in a sense. Columbo's the running thing. And then he meets a lot of people with the same face. I don't know how else to explain it. It made sense to us at the time. It was the 70s, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and R.L.T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at M.B. Latofsky, that's M.B. Lit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Forbidden Planet, 1956, and Scanners, 1981. Put down, Are you afraid? And also Columbus. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, listen, one more thing. It, it just, it'll just take a second.